Um, let's start off by having a look at this um, patient here who was seen by the Swiss ophthalmologist. Uh, it's a female. She's essentially 60 years of age, and she suffered a stroke involving the left part of her brain. And this has kind of left her with a situation where she sees color on the um, left side of her vision, and essentially on the right side of her vision, she's got sort of um, uh, only shades of gray and white and black. And so, so this was kind of published by, by the ophthalmologist in 1988. And he kind of figured out that um, essentially there had to be a part of the brain where color was processed and that there was this kind of functional um, specialization within the brain, and this would apply to other cortical sort of functions. And this will give you, this patient here will give you some hint as to the kind of uh, quite amazing nature of vision and of the brain um, behind it. If we, uh, we know today, of course, that the area that was involved here was area V4, which is kind of involved with color, but there's a whole lot of other areas in the brain which are also kind of involved with form and motion and so forth. And um, so although vision seems to us to be a unitary type of process, um, in many ways it's, it's, it's much more complex and there's lots of different parts of the brain that, that uh, work together in order to create what seems to us, to, to us this unitary type of function or process. If you're not convinced about how amazing vision is, let's have a look at this thing. Um, this is a simple visual illusion. The lines, of course, are parallel. Um, but what's more amazing is that if you look at it, you'll see that it, 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 it seems to change or vary. And even if you keep your eyes still, you'll still notice it's a little harder to see, but you'll still notice that there seems to be this kind of variation in the uh, in a sense of apparent motion. And when you start to tease out why this is happening, you've got to keep in mind that there are two eyes. Each eye receives a different image, and some parts of the image are in focus, and some parts are out of focus. And there's a whole metabolic process going on in your retina with different cells uh, re reacting and some changing as, uh, you know, fatigue and, and so on as the process is going by. So that's really what I want to talk about to this evening. Uh, some of the eye, some of its wonders and imperfections, and also um, a little bit about some of the work that I've been busy with over the last sort of 20 years or so. <coughs> Uh, one of the imperfections that we're all very aware of, of course, is blur. And if you look at the stereo painting in the background there, you, of course, you'll see it's blurred. But if I kind of uh, focus it for you, uh, those of you who are familiar with stereo pairs know what to do. And uh, the rest of you, you need to just put your finger out in front of you, look at your finger, and you should have some kind of three-dimensional picture here. And um, what you will should see if you fuse it is that there's a kind of pyramid. You're looking at the pyramid from above and these sort of black and white stripes with circles and triangles. And so this was a stereo painting that I did um, when I met Bill in the sort of early 1990s and when he was using stereo pairs for other purposes. And so I got all excited and decided, well, I better go and paint some stereo pairs. If you want to see some good ones, then you need to look at Salvador Dali. And they're very representational, whereas this is geometric. I have tried my hand at representational ones. They're not as easy. Um, but... Uh, this will give you some hint of some of the broader wonders of uh, vision, such as our sense of color, our ability to sense color, uh, depth, uh, perception, and, and I'm not even going to get to talk about most of those. We're going to talk about the simpler things, the structure of the eye and, and some of those issues. Um, Stereopairs, of course, have been around since about the 1830s, and they were invented by Wheatstone, who was an English scientist. And he kind of developed a, a simple uh, stereoscope where you simply you have two mirrors, and he did a stereo drawing in place on this side, and he did another one on that side. And when you look into the mirrors, you see something which looks three-dimensional. And that's kind of where uh, stereograms and stereoscopes and these stereo pairs originated from. 
Um, before we can really get into a discussion of what's um, involved with stereo pairs and what Bill was doing with them, we need to understand a little bit about uh, refractive error and the imperfections of the eye. And we're not going to get into the maths in any huge detail, but essentially we use three numbers, uh, such as you see there, and those are the numbers that we use to, uh, to specify whether a person is short-sighted or long-sighted or has astigmatism and so forth. And so when you look at this here, uh, we kind of represent these things with the symbol FS or FC and A, or simply capital S, capital C and A. And Paul kind of found this was a rather odd thing that optometry was doing. And although it worked quite well to design lenses like this to get rid of those imperfections, it wasn't very useful for much else. And so, he, but after thinking about it for a while, he decided, well, with some mathematical equations that it was, and fit, well, sorry, fairly straightforward equations here, uh, or maybe not so much, but essentially that one could transform it into a, um, a, a another set of numbers uh, that we see here. And it looks as if we've started with three numbers and now we wind up with four. But in most of the instances where we'll be talking about, these two off-diagonal numbers are the same. So we started with three numbers representing the refractive state. So we've a sphere, sill, and axis, and we've simply changed them into something a little different. But there's a huge difference because uh, one can do scientific things with this, which you can't really with this. And a lot of the theory and details are in papers like this and a lot of other papers that Bill wrote over the years. And we can also do some more sort of maths on these things and get these three coefficients here, and they can be useful for graphical and other purposes. All right, so this led to some work that I got involved with with uh, stereo pairs. And again, you need to look in front of the screen and not, and you should see the middle one. You'll see three of these things at the top here. And the one that you'll see which has depth, uh, you'll see that there's lots of little dots and some dots are forward and some dots are back and so forth. And each one represents an eye, one of these sort of 60,000 odd eyes um, which were seen. And um, the people who are short-sighted are sitting down at the bottom here, and they are people when you take off their lens, they can't see at distance, essentially. And at the top here, you've got people who are long-sighted, who may or may not see well, depending on their age and other issues. And right in the center there, where the three axes meet, that's where we find the emetropes. People who have very good vision, uh, excluding other causes like disease and so forth, but essentially would not need a lens uh, in order to see clearly. Uh, you'll also notice that points can be located away from this axis that is buried under all these points here, and those are the eyes with astigmatism, where the different meridians of the eye have different power, essentially, and the image is distorted as a result of all of that. Um, one of the things that you can get out of doing this kind of transformation is that you get a meaningful average here. And although we can treat the sphere and the cylinder and the axis and plot it like this, essentially this gives us an, an average which isn't really very meaningful and which Bill called a naive mean. And the distribution of, as well isn't a very sensible representation of what's actually going on. At the same time, we don't have to necessarily use stereo pairs, uh, but they have the advantage in that we can see where points are located with respect to one another. Whereas something like this, for example, uh, if we rotate it 90 degrees upwards, it'll look a lot like this, but it's harder to see which points are forward and which points are back and what they really mean. And that's where the stereo pair becomes very useful in terms of analysis and representation. Um, we can also get uh, measurements of dispersion, which we see here, which, and these are very basic sort of statistics, which we have to understand if we're looking at samples and trying to make sense of what might be happening. 
And this kind of representation and study of distributions is important because lots of people simply don't have lenses and it's estimated that it costs uh, many billions of uh, dollars every year in lost productivity and various other uh, interference with learning and all sorts of other processes. So uh, one has to understand these sorts of distributions. And this is sort of the work that I was, uh, not quite this distribution, but looking at distributions of refractive state and studying for my masters. Um, then I went on to look at other things like uh, surfaces of constant visual acuity for my uh, doctorate, but uh, unless you want to spend a couple of more hours, I think we'll leave that and move on to something simpler. Um, so I kind of was interested in color, and can one find a more uh, satisfactory way to represent that color and to analyze color? And what, what, one, of, one of the things that I realized is that you could also represent color with three numbers. And uh, any point on an image like this has a red component or long wavelength component, a green or medium, and a blue or short wavelength component. And so again, if you look in front of the screen, you should be able to see that there's a kind of color cube here, and any color can be represented uh, somewhere within that color cube. Um, so, so a picture like this can be represented here. I'm not sure it's an improvement, but uh, there it is. It allows us to start studying things like color behavior, and so if we present to someone on a computer screen something like this where there's two objects here, one is going to stay constant and the other one we're going to vary. And we want to know from the person uh, when do they just notice that there's a difference in the one color in comparison to the other. And these are the just noticeable differences that we'll see here. And there's a whole cluster of them over there where we've, where we've repeated this process on this one person. And essentially you can see that for a color like red, uh, you can't vary the color very much before they notice that there is a difference. Whereas for other colors, like for example green and for blue, uh, there's a much wider, uh, looser distribution of points. And they're not as sensitive to uh, change in the colors. And that has to do with the nature of the receptors in your retina and various other factors. There's lots more uh, red receptors and uh, uh, very few blue receptors and so forth. All right, so that got me interested in, uh, I was just starting to use, uh, look at color and investigating color using stereo pairs and uh, various quantitative methods which aren't really you know, illustrated here. Um, it also led to taking things like those two photographs of the conjunctiva of your eye, this membrane on top of the conjunctiva, and representing them in, in this kind of color space. And you can see here that this photograph was taken with this one also, they, they're kind of a few seconds or whatever it was in between the two photographs, but you can see that there's a kind of reflection there which is cre creating a little tail here. And so um, even though the photographs were taken almost immediately one after another, either the camera moved or the eye moved or something else. And, uh, but what I was looking at is can we look at, for example, a tumor and pick up change in the coloration of the tumor long before the human eye would notice it. And, one, and that would obviously facilitate early diagnosis and referral and so on. And that's really what this was leading to. And one would obviously have to get the pictures in better alignment with the blood vessels. And, and there are ways of doing that um, if, as we need to. All right, then of course the stereo pairs are also useful for looking at things like this. Um, where we can, uh, again, if you, if you fuse it, you'll see that the cornea is sitting in front with the lens behind. And um, when we look at different uh, types of animals and organisms, uh, you have, for example, in the horse where the, where the lens of the eye is tilted and the top of the lens is closer to the cornea than the bottom of the lens. You've got animals where the lens is, is, is rigid, it's, it doesn't change. You've got, like us in humans, you've got a soft lens and sharks and things like this will have a soft lens. And it can change, and that's how we, we, we can focus at different distances, essentially. 
at the same time, you've got other eyes where there isn't a gap here. The cornea and the lens are in juxtaposition with one another, they, they may touch in basically. Um, of course, then there are also, besides optometrists, there are also other people who sometimes will look, uh, want to look at therapies, uh, werewolves and astronomers and so forth, and so <laughs> occasionally there's uh, you know, the moon for them. <laughs> 